Good morning. So today we are uh, going to hear from, I bet you thought I was going to say a book of the Bible. We're going to hear from Napoleon Bonaparte, um, the Emperor Napoleon was famous for writing love letters to his wife. One of those letters, he said, My happiness is to be near you. The charms of the incomparable Josephine kindle continually a burning and glowing flame in my heart. We've been walking for a couple of years through a series called Learning to Love God's Word. Scripture is like a collection of love letters from God. It's God's way of saying, my happiness is to be near you and to have you near me. And so we want to learn to read every word and every detail of these letters of love that God has spoken into our world. As we do that, one of the things we're seeing as we walk through the Scriptures and and take a glimpse at every book we're almost at the end of the Old Testament. We're, we're seeing that there are different types of literature included in these letters. Some love letters tell stories. Sometimes a love letter comes to you and it has a poem in it. Or sometimes a love letter quotes a song that's meaningful in the relationship of the lovers. And sometimes the love letter includes pictures. Today we're looking at the book of Zechariah. It's full of pictures and poetry visions, word pictures that God gave the prophet, and then poems, words to explain the meanings of those pictures, those visions. So today's reading from Zechariah chapter 2 is going to start with a picture, a vision that the prophet Zechariah sees, and it's going to move to a poem explaining the significance of that picture. We'll hear, hear God say, my love for you will never run out. In fact, it's going to overflow and include every nation in the people whom I love. So let's hear now Scripture reading from Zechariah chapter 2. Today's Scripture reading comes from Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand, Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up! Up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. 
Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we listen for God to speak. Lord, be near to us. Um, Help us today to be silent, to be still before you and listen to what you are saying. You are not saying that you want us to get quickly to the end of this hour so that we can check it off our list of things to do. You're not saying that these are empty pretend words that make us feel good for a few minutes. You are saying that underneath every reality is you, and you're saying that the answer to every need of our broken world and our broken hearts is to be found And you, help us to listen to what you are saying. Amen. You ever been afraid something will run out? I don't know what your precious thing is that it comes in limited supply, but um, in my world, one of those things, at least in the past, was, was a habit I picked up living in Scotland, drinking tea, but a particular kind of tea, Scottish breakfast tea. It's especially strong in flavor, and I think it has more than the average amount of caffeine in it. And um, it got really hard to find it here in the United States for a while. And so it was like a treasure hunt when you go in a grocery store and find a box of Scottish breakfast tea. You buy it, and then you kind of nurse it along and, you know, not drink three cups a day. It's too precious. You were, you were afraid that it was going to run out. And um, now, in, in my world, it's not fair to order a case of something online and have it magically show up at your door. It only counts if you, if you treat it like a treasure hunt, right? And, and you have to actually find it on a shelf, in a store, real live, in person. And if you play by those rules, you're always afraid you're going to run out. But recently, Publix has started carrying my very favorite brand, Taylor's Scottish Breakfast Tea. And you walk in, and it's like there are 50 boxes on the shelf. And this thing you were afraid was running out, now overflowing abundant supply. The prophet Zechariah and the people among whom he lived were afraid that God's love for his people may be running out. Zechariah is writing at a time when God's people have experienced exile. And so... um, they, they, they were living in a city that looked like this. These are a couple of my friends sitting on some of the rubble from destroyed walls in Jerusalem. And um, the whole city had been laid to waste in Zechariah's day by the Babylonian Empire. And here are these people who have been released from slavery in Babylon. They've returned over years to live again in the city of Jerusalem, but the city where they're dwelling is completely destroyed. Everything has been burned. Everything has been gutted, and there's fear that God's love for His people has run out. Why were these people afraid of that? First of all, because of their own sin, their own forgetfulness of their relationship with God. Jerusalem was meant to be a focal point for worship. In fact, just behind where these stones are sitting is the location of the ancient temple in Jerusalem. 
Here was a city that was meant to be the focal point for where God met with his people, the, the place where the highest expression of relationship with God was happening. But because God's people had forgotten him over so many years and so consistently turned to other things and worshiped other things that are part of this creation instead of him, the creator, Jerusalem had become not a focal point for worship, but focal point for judgment. The Babylonians came and conquered the city, and God was clear that this was discipline and punishment for the idolatry of the people. Can you imagine why walking around a city that looked like that would make you think that your sin was going to cause God's love to run out? that's not the only thing that might make you think that. Apart from sin, there's weakness. See, we live in a complex world, right, where um, sometimes things go wrong because of what we do, and sometimes things go wrong because of something that has nothing to do with anything we did. I'm, I'm right now nursing an injury that's like that. And I talk to my physical therapist, I talk to a doctor, and, and, and like, what, what's causing this pain I'm feeling? And the answer is twofold. One, you did too much running. Two, COVID hit, and you had to start sitting a lot more because you're working from home. One of those things, your fault, you blew it. <laughs> One of those things had nothing to do with you. It's a pandemic. It affected everybody in the world. Not your fault. And the pain you're experiencing is this combination of those two. That's what it's like to live in relationship with God. Some of the things that go wrong, that disrupt our love relationship with him, they're our fault. We did it. We blew it. And some of the things have nothing to do with anything we did. So if you were living in Jerusalem and you're walking around this city destroyed like this, you're saying it's, it's not just sin but weakness that before the Babylonian Empire, we're just this tiny little nation and we were helpless and they brutalized us and they utterly defeated us. Has God's love for us run out because we're so weak and tiny and helpless? That has nothing to do with sin. Everything to do with what it is to live in a world full of powerful, brutal people. In response to this, God gives Zechariah a vision. And in that vision, he describes a symbol. And behind that symbol stands a reality. That's what we're going to explore this morning, the vision, the symbol, the reality. Now, I just gave you a key for avoiding a lot of mistakes in interpreting the visions in the Bible. A lot of the reasons that people think the Bible is silly is because they are accustomed to reading symbols as though they directly describe reality. And so you read this fearful vision in the book of Revelation and it describes this beast with horns and, and it makes the Bible sound like a comic book. And people walk away going, this thing is foolish. But they're making a mistake, so don't do it this way. Vision, then symbol, then reality. Don't do it like this, red bad. Don't. Don't go straight from vision to reality. The visions in the Bible describe symbols, and the symbols stand for realities. 
And if you cut out the symbol and you say this vision directly describes a reality, then you will wind up in the wrong place. So we'll see how that works as we unpack this pattern here in Zechariah 2. We'll start with the vision. Zechariah sees a vision, verse 2, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, behold is just a word that means look. I saw something, look at it with me. What did he see? He saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. I see measuring man, Zechariah says. And, uh, and, and, and I'm talking to angel number one, right? And, and I ask measuring man, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to measure Jerusalem, verse 2. I'm going to see how wide it is and how long it is. And then the angel who is talking to me, we'll call him angel number one, came forward and another angel came to talk to him. So angel one and angel two are now going to have a conversation. And the conversation runs like this. Angel two says, hey, angel one, run over there and tell measuring man to stop. Tell him to stop measuring. Why would you be measuring? Well, if you live in a city whose walls have been utterly destroyed, you're completely defenseless. And if you're measuring to see how big the city is, what are you planning to do? You're planning to build new walls. How big is the city? How many stones do we need to cut? How many workers do we need to employ? Let's measure it. Let's figure out how many people need to be living inside these walls and what are the dimensions that are needed as we rebuild. And angel two comes with a message from God and it's urgent. Because he says, angel one, run over there and tell measuring man to stop. Well, why? Because Jerusalem will be like villages out in the countryside that don't have any walls around them. Well, how is that possible? Because of the multitude of people. There are going to be so many people living here that you won't be able to build a wall big enough to hold them all in. People and livestock, peace Such peace that we don't need a wall. Such prosperity that you can't count the wealth we own. Now, they counted wealth in terms of cattle. This promise of livestock, it's a vision God is giving. A peace and prosperity. And so many people belonging to him with their whole heart that you couldn't build a wall big enough. So, measuring man, you can put your tape measure away. Walls are a thing of the past around here. And then God himself directly speaks in verse 5. I will be to her, the city, a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. She won't be helpless and defenseless and weak because I will be a wall of fire surrounding her and protecting her. She will never live in the dark I will be a wall of fire providing light for her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Jerusalem, my happiness is to be near you. Why would this vision be so powerful? This vision of a a city that was so big you couldn't build a wall around it. God is saying that even in your worst moments, 
My love for you will not run out. We're standing in piles of burned rubble and God is singing a song about the incomparable, incomparable beauties and charms of Jerusalem. How can he sing that song over a people so broken? The answer is this. There is something about God's love that enables him to forgive even our worst moments. There is something that draws him to us even when he fully sees all of our weakness, even when we sit in his office and we say, yep, I blew it, I ran too much, too fast, and it's my own fault, and I hurt myself. He says, you're strong. My physical therapist said to me the first time I went to see him, the only reason I came to see you is because I'm hurting and weak. And the first thing he said to me was, hmm, you're strong. What's that about? God seeing all the weakness of his people and saying, there's something about my love that enables me to look past all those worst moments so much that I want to be with you. I want to be the glory in your midst. In fact, I'm so crazy about you that I want you to multiply and spread And become so many that the walls can't be built big enough to hold you in. That's the vision. And in the vision is a symbol. What's the symbol? The symbol is a city. The symbol is the city of Jerusalem. The symbol is, this, this is a picture I took as the sun is setting looking north toward Jerusalem from the top of a famous church building. That city appears several times in this vision and in the poem that unpacks it. And the city throughout Scripture is a symbol of many things. Listen to the references in verse 2. Uh, the, the measuring man says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. And then God speaks about Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. I will be to her, the city of Jerusalem, a wall of fire. I will be the glory in her midst. This city features in the vision. And then in the poem that follows unpacking it, we hear another name for the same city, the name of Zion. Verse 7, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. If you're still in exile over in Babylon, come back to this city. Why? Because the city is symbolizing something really important. Verse 10, O daughter of Zion, sing and rejoice. What does the city symbolize? Well, throughout Scripture, the city of Jerusalem symbolizes many things. Now, here's where we're going to be helped by our interpretive principle. We're going from vision to symbol to reality. We're not going just from vision to reality. Because if we were doing that, we would read Zechariah's vision and we would say, oh, the literal city of Jerusalem is one day going to get so big that you can't build a wall big enough to go around it. Vision, reality. But wait a minute. 
The city of Jerusalem is a symbol for something bigger throughout Scripture and here in this text. What does Jerusalem symbolize? The presence of God. I want to be with my people. I will come be with you in your midst. Verse 5, I will be the glory in her midst. Verse 11, you shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst. I love you and I want to be with you. Jerusalem is a symbol of that. The Jerusalem temple is a symbol of that. This is why people like you and me who may never set our eyes on the literal city of Jerusalem, these Scripture promises still mean something for us. Even if you never go to live in the city of Jerusalem, this Scripture promise is still going to come true for you. Why? Because here, the city is functioning as a symbol for God's desire to be present with His people. Now, how do we know we're dealing with symbol here, not literal description of the physical Jerusalem? Wall of fire was our first hint, right? The literal physical city of Jerusalem on this planet will never have a wall of fire around it. That's symbolic language. Okay, now we know to interpret these references to Jerusalem as a symbol. A symbol of what? First, God's presence, His desire to be with us because He loves us. Second, Jerusalem often functions as a symbol of God's rule, the place from which His reign of love and life will radiate out to bless all the nations of the world. That's what Jerusalem was always meant to be. And so... God intends His people to be that still, even if we're not living in the literal city of Jerusalem. God is saying, I love you so much. I want to make you the, the place from which my life and love radiate out to others. And then Jerusalem is a symbol of the people of God. It isn't that God loves a piece of real estate. It isn't that God loves Jerusalem dust better than Atlanta dirt, that He likes rock better than red clay. Jerusalem is a symbol of being the people of God. Did you hear that little image used as, as James was reading the Scripture text for us? In verse 8, Thus said the Lord of hosts, he who touches you, my people, touches the apple of my eye. What's the apple of your eye? Well, to, today that's kind of become a, an idiom in English. But it, it means the inner part of your eye, whether the pupil or the iris. But now imagine somebody trying to touch that part of your eye. What's your first reflex? Get away from me. Get back. Why? Well, to begin with, it hurts when you mess with my eye. I'm real sensitive about how my eye gets treated. For another thing, I've only got two of them. They're precious to me. God says that about his people. I love my people with a jealous love. They are precious to me. And if anybody mistreats them, 
it causes me deep pain. So I'm going to guard them jealously because I love them. My love for you will never run out. That's what this symbol is saying to us. Now, verse 11 makes it clear that God's people will one day grow and grow and expand to include many nations. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. This is another way that we know there's a lot of symbolism going on in this passage, right? My people, many nations coming to one city. How's that going to work? Is that one city going to grow so big it covers the whole earth? No, we're talking about symbols here. My people will come to include many nations because my love will never run out. How can that be? I mean, if you were living in Jerusalem when Zechariah was writing these words down, you'd be like, I, we thought we were God's special people. And now if he's just going to love all the nations, he won't love us as much, right? Now, every parent in the room who has had more than one child, you've had to answer this question, haven't you? Right? Mom and dad love you. We're not going to stop loving you because you're having a little brother or sister. We're not going to love you any less. The love isn't decreasing. The family is increasing. You've had that conversation. And sometimes it goes right over the head. <laughs> And sometimes it hits home, but it's always true. And that's what God is like. There is something about his love that enables him to faithfully pursue a worldwide people so that he doesn't have to stop loving one group in order to love others. And this is where we come back to the reality Behind all the visions and behind all the use of Jerusalem as a symbol is the reality of God's infinite love. God can share his love with people from every nation and every background without his love becoming weaker. God can love each of his people as the apple of his eye, intensely, fiercely, Every one of us. And while he's loving one of us with that ferocity and intensity, he's not forgetting any of us. Because his love is infinite. His love is greater than all of our worst moments combined. Take every one of his people from every place and every century and then put together all of our weakness and put together all of our sin Put together all the things that we messed up and did it wrong and all the things that happened to us that had nothing to do with anything we did. Put all of that mess together, mix it around, and his love is greater than all of that. His love is infinite. How can that be true? We're going to look again at Jerusalem as a symbol, this time as something else. Jerusalem was supposed to be a focal point of worship for God's people. 
it became a focal point of judgment. So many biblical texts that talk about Jerusalem are talking about how it will be destroyed because of the idolatry of the people. And then many texts, like the one we're reading today, talk about Jerusalem as a focal point of restoration. After the city has been destroyed, it's going to be rebuilt. Jerusalem becomes a symbol of both of those things. This picture shows you a little bit of how the city of Jerusalem runs uphill, especially this area where the temple once stood, where that gold dome is located. It runs uphill because it was built on a mountaintop. If you go there today and stand on that temple platform, it looks flat. But that's because they hired Chuck Vogt to come in and build a big retaining wall around it and fill it up and make it flat. Underneath it is a mountain. And the name of that mountain, well, it used to be called Mount Moriah. It's where Abraham took his son Isaac. It was a place of judgment where Abraham thought that he would have to experience the loss, the death of his son as though you were sacrificing an animal, expressing God's anger against human evil. But Abraham's son was restored to him. Isaac didn't have to die. There was a ram on top of Mount Moriah. That happened right here, that place, that city, the focal point of judgment and restoration. It happened in the life of Israel when the city was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then, as God's people were released from Babylon, returned back to the city, they rebuilt the city. And it prospered and flourished again. Jerusalem had become this focal point of judgment and then of restoration. And then finally, Jesus came. God dwelling in our midst. And just a bit to the, um, the top of that photo, just outside of what you could see, is the location outside the ancient city walls where Jesus was put to death, where he became the focal point of judgment. And where he rose again. And he became the focal point of restoration. Jesus died to atone for all of our worst moments. And he rose again to show us the full meaning of what God had in mind when he said, I will be their glory, resurrection glory, all life, no death, all health, no disease, all purity, no wickedness. That kind of glory Jesus enjoys it now. He will share it with us one day when he comes again because of God's infinite love. People who are infinitely loved are powerfully changed. We don't give up because we have had some worst moments. We know there's infinite love. Love infinite enough to keep loving us, to atone for all those worst moments, even give us power to grow 
and a change. And we don't limit our love for other people to a small group of insiders who are just like us. Are you from Jerusalem? Pre-exile or post-exile? You live on the west side of the city or the east? How do you spell your last name? Our love is not like that. We're not just looking for the narrowest band of other people to love. Why? Because we've been powerfully changed by the infinite love of God that says we are called to love our neighbor as ourself no matter who our neighbor is. We are called to share our faith in Jesus with a people that includes many nations. Why? Because we're so good. We're better than our neighbors? No. Because infinite love has a powerful transforming effect on those who are loved. Napoleon loved Josephine. But his love was not infinite. They were not able to have children. He was very interested in having a male heir to his empire. And so he divorced her at what he judged to be her worst moment, his love ran out. Jesus is God's promise. My love for you will never run out. Let's give thanks together. Lord God, thank you for this picture of love. Thank you for your deep love for your people. Thank you for the way that love culminates in the sending of your Son to experience judgment so that we will never have to, to experience powerful restoration of life and glory and goodness in his resurrection so that one day we can experience that same thing. Lord, would you change us? And as, our, as we are infinitely loved by you, make us more loving ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.